Today, if you've got a Bible with you, you can open up to uh, a scripture from Ephesians. We're going to jump around. There's going to be a ton of scripture today uh, just because the topic is so, so big. And I want to begin by sharing with you a story about a man named Kevin Richardson. Kevin Richardson is one of the leading advocates for protecting some of the endangered species in our culture. Here's a picture of, of Kevin. He has, um, he's, he's gotten the nickname of the Lion Whisperer. Because he's been able to just get to know lions really well, um, roll with them, sleep with them, play with them. Um, he's, he's produced many documentaries on these animals, encouraging people to help protect them. But in uh, February of this year, he was taking three of the lions out for a walk in the park when one of them took off after an impala. And about a mile uh, away from him, encountered a visitor to the park and mauled this young lady to death. National Geographic wrote a response to this incident. And they actually blamed the park for their treatment of the animal. They said you have to be really careful when working with large predators like this. And then I quote, we need to be acutely aware of our place in the food chain. Many um, people get little lion cubs as pets and try to raise them. And there's an estimated 10,000 large cats that people have um, in their basements, in their backyards, thinking they're going to make good pets. But what usually happens is that these animals get large and unmanageable, and so they end up donating them to some of the many refuges around our country. In fact, there was a refuge for big cats right in our vicinity in Callahan called Serendipity Springs. A few years ago, my wife and I, I had the privilege to go and tour and see all the different kinds of cats they have. And it was just amazing behind these cages and panthers and leopards and lions and tigers. Oh, my. It was just all over the place. And it was very impressive. And at, at the very end, we got to hold a little tiger cub in our hands and get a picture taken. And so we have a picture of, of me holding this little tiger cub. I'm petting this cub and getting our picture. But I'll, I'll tell you, that's the last time I'll ever get to pet a lion, most likely. Because cubs are nice and cuddly. Lions are deadly. And you don't pet a lion. You don't pet a lion. In fact, the question has been raised, what's more amazing, a lion who suddenly attacks a human being or a human being who thinks he can tame the lion? Which is more ridiculous? Because lions weren't made to be our pets. They weren't made to be our friends. And I think that's why the Bible uses this imagery to remind us of something very profound. If you've got a Bible, I'm actually going to start in a different place of the Bible than Ephesians, 1 Peter 5, 8, where Peter said, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And Peter is writing from personal experience. He knew the power of... Of the enemy. See, we've been talking uh, last week and this week, and we'll actually finish next week talking about the spiritual battle all around us. And as Paul said, it's not against flesh and blood, it's not against people, it's against these invisible spiritual powers in the heavenly realms, this other dimension where there are spirits and there are evil spirits, and there's levels and layers of principalities and powers and forces that are working against us. That's the real enemy. So Peter was writing from personal experience. I think he would agree with the evangelist Dwight L. Moody who said this. He said, I believe Satan to exist for two reasons. First, the Bible says so. And second, I've done business with him. And if you are a Christian who's seeking to follow Jesus, you know exactly what he's talking about. 
If you're someone who says, well, I don't think there's a devil, I don't see him working in my life, then, then maybe you're not following Jesus close enough. Maybe you're not aware of, of what the enemy is really seeking to do. See, in our culture, we have a very difficult time believing in evil spirits. Other cultures don't have that problem. Go to South America, Africa, Asia. They believe in this dualism that there's a, there's a physical world and there's an invisible spiritual world. And from their perspective, it answers a lot of questions we have in life. But, but we kind of block that off in our minds. We don't like to believe that. And yet, what's ironic is we'll believe in an invisible God, an invisible Holy Spirit, an invisible place called heaven. We believe that when we die, we go to be in this invisible realm. So why would it be so hard to believe that there would be evil spirits in this invisible realm as well? And we need to trust God's word when he shows us that this is something that's very real. The Bible doesn't say a whole lot about the devil and the demons and how they originated, except for some hints in some prophetic um, passages in the Bible where it seems that Satan was once a, a glorified angel, one of God's top angels named Lucifer. And through arrogance and pride, he felt he, he should be like God. He should, have, he should be worshipped. He should have power over, over this universe. And so he was cast down to earth along with uh, the rebellious angels. And, and since then, they've been wreaking havoc upon this planet. And I think it's so interesting that Satan's cause for his downfall was pride. And the word that describes a group of lions is what? A pride. Very fitting for this one that the Bible calls the devil. So I want to read a passage we read last week and go back because I, I believe it deserves some special attention. It's found in verses 10 and 11 of Ephesians 6. Finally, Paul says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. I want to I talk about the schemes of the devil. Some of your Bibles use different words. It might say the wiles of the devil. It might say the strategies of the devil. That word means methods. It means tactics. It, it, Satan has an organized, well-thought-out plan to defeat you. And he has more than one option. He has a whole bag of tricks that he pulls out. In fact, Paul writes to Timothy about a couple of individuals in 2 Timothy chapter 2, men in the church who were ensnared by the devil and captive to do his will. Now think about that. These are church people that Satan set a trap for. They fell into the trap, and now instead of saying yes to God, they're saying yes to Satan. Well, if that can happen within the church, shouldn't we have our antennas up? See, we need to know what, what Satan is about. What are, his, what are his schemes? What are his tactics? Because if I know what they are, I know how to be alert. I know how to know when he's coming, when he's working in my life. In sports, one of the things teams do is they study the other team's offense. Like our defense needs to know what their offense is going to do. Because if we can shut them down, we can beat them. A good offense is a good defense. Same is true with our Christian lives. You want to know how to beat the devil? You know, how, you know how to win this spiritual battle? Well, be alert to what he's trying to do. And put a face on it. When you see what Satan is trying to do and recognize it's just isn't the weather, it's just not my emotions, it's just not circumstances, there actually is someone behind leveraging these things against me, then it, I don't know about you, but it makes me want to fight. See, I need, a, I need an opponent to fight. If you're in sports, you know this. You can practice all week long, but you get real frustrated constantly working on improving yourself. You want to compete. You want to get on the game field or in the boxing ring and have an opponent. 
And so I'm going to urge you, get in the war against the opponent. It's not you against yourself. It's not you just fighting your own willpower. It's not you just fighting the circumstances around you. It's you doing battle against a spiritual enemy who's out to destroy you. So I want to look at five tactics the enemy uses against us. And maybe it'll strike home. And by the way, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we are not ignorant of his designs. It's not like, is that like Satan's tricky about it? Because he, it works. His stuff works. He's used it for decades, for generations. It, the same stuff he used back early in history still works today. So Satan's saying, Satan, here's, here's my offense, and here's what I'm coming at you with. See if you can stop me. Do you want to know how to stop him? You want to stop him? Know his tactics. Know his tactics. Number one, here's first tactic. His first tactic is to fill our minds with lies. Fill our minds with lies. You've heard the joke probably before. How can you tell when a politician is lying? Their lips are moving, right? And we laugh at that. And it's not true. Not all politicians are lying, but some do. Some do. But I know this to be true. How do you know when Satan is lying? Whenever he opens his mouth. Whenever. Do you know why? Jesus said that is his language. That's his language. It's like you speak English or you speak Spanish or you speak French or whatever. He speaks deceit. That's just who he is. Jesus said in John chapter 8, uh, verse 44, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. He can't, he can't stop lying because that's who he is. He's the father of lies. That's his language. And we see that in the Garden of Eden. With Adam and Eve, we see it in the wilderness when he's tempting Jesus and and twisting Scripture. He whispers false promises. Uh, He twists Scripture in our minds. And you just need to know, he does that a lot with church people. Remember what I told you last week? If someone's outside the Lord, he doesn't have to spend much time on them. They're already his. He spends the majority of his time on you and on me relentlessly attacking us. That's why you can read in Scripture almost all of the incidents involving the devil have to do with followers of Jesus. People, people who are, are in some, some ways indicating they want to follow him. So here's a couple. We find them in the early church. Their names are Ananias and Sapphira. You can read the full story in Acts chapter 5, but here's the short version. They observed a man named Barnabas selling a piece of property and bringing the money to the church and saying, apostles, spend this. Meet people's needs through this gift. And so Ananias and Sapphira realized they had a piece of property that they could sell and do the very same thing. Yet, they wanted to present the money to the apostles but keep some of it for themselves. Given the impression they were doing exactly like Barnabas did, giving the whole amount to the Lord. Now, there's nothing wrong with keeping some of it for themselves. In fact, there was no requirement for them to sell their, sell their property and even give any of it. The problem was they were trying to be deceitful about it. And so when they presented the offering and they were challenged, is this the amount you got for the sale of the property? And, and they were given an opportunity, come on, tell the truth. And they wouldn't. And because of that, something very devastating happened. Both the husband and wife were struck dead on the spot. It was as if God said, my church has just started, and be it above me that I would allow deceitfulness, the language of the devil, to get a foothold in my church. And with very firm, harsh judgment, God said, no way. Because he thinks that, um, that much about the language of deceitfulness. In fact, 
Before Ananias was struck dead, Peter said to him, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Satan has filled your heart with lies, and then you in turn have lied. That's what Satan does. He lies first to us, and then we become liars. I look back at my life. Do you know the first sin I struggled with was? Lying. As a little kid, lying. You know, things like, did you do your chores? Did you start the fight? You know, uh, did, did, you, did you make that mark on the wall? You know, all of a sudden I'm finding uh, I'm, I'm lying and I can get away with stuff if I lie. And I didn't realize at the time that there's someone actually urging me to do those things. And so we go through our lives and, and lying just becomes part of it. It, it. It's almost as if we have a bracelet that says WWSD. What would Satan do? And so we realize that when someone asks us questions, that we can get around it with a little twisting of the truth. So regarding our homework, regarding our chores, regarding where we've been, what we've been doing, who we've been doing it with. We, we lie on paperwork, on resumes, on applications, on tax forms, on time cards. And then Satan comes along and whispers in our minds, rationale for it. It didn't hurt anybody. You deserve that. They took advantage of you in the first place. See, he just whispers those lies and we start to say, yeah, it's, see, if I lie, I won't hurt my spouse. If I lie, I won't make my parents mad. Now, obviously, God doesn't want my spouse to fight or my parents to get mad. Actually, it's God's will that I lie. I mean, we get to the point where he starts saying, God actually wants me to lie. Where'd that come from? I believe there's someone behind us just going, keep it up. Woohoo! Go for it. Go for it. You're doing it. Cheering you on, and we don't even see it. I had this interesting thought the other day, which cleared up some, a, a very perplexing problem. I always wondered, when I get to heaven, how can there be no more sin? Because I'm a sinner. So how is God going to change me so I never sin again when I'm in heaven? And then it dawned on me as I was studying this this week. Maybe I've not realized that, that without the prompter in heaven, the prompter of sin, which is Satan, without him there, obedience to God is so much easier. So he's, he's prompting you. He's filling your heart with lies. filling your head with lies. Lies about God, his word, his promises, his commands, his will. Lies about people, about your spouse, about your kids, about your parents, about the people you work with, about the people in your church, about people different than you. How much racism is fueled by lies about people? Generalizations, things we've heard that aren't true. Satan leverages that against us. And you'd think that when someone's close to the Lord that um, obviously they don't have a problem with lying anymore. But as we saw, Ananias and Sapphira were in the church. They were leaders in the church. And then we go to Jesus' inner circle. I'm not talking about his 12. I'm talking about his three. Peter, James, and John. So it gets toward the end of Jesus' ministry and he begins to share something very important to his disciples. It says in Matthew 16, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
So, so Jesus says, you know, I, I'm heading to the cross. That's God's will. And they're going to kill me and I'm going to rise from the dead. And Peter has the, the guts or the stupidity, I don't know which it is, to say, hey, Jesus, let me talk to you. That ain't ever going to happen. Not on my watch. It's never going to happen. And Jesus looks right through him as if he's speaking to someone else and says, get behind me, Satan. Peter! His, Jesus like right-hand man getting influenced by the lies of the evil one, discounting the truth that Jesus has just presented, saying, that's not going to happen. See, if, if Satan can do it to Peter, why do, you, why do you think he can't do it to you? He can. If he gets a little opening, if he finds out that you're a little gullible, he will come at you. He is not your friend. He is not a pussycat. Don't pet the lion. Here's another tactic. He seduces us with temptation. It's like putting the bait on the hook and dangling it in front of us. He did it with Adam and Eve. You know, God said no, but, but really, here's, here's what you could have if you said yes. Jesus in the wilderness. Man, Jesus, you could have this stones turn into bread. You could, you could have all these kingdoms. If you wanted them, I could give them to you. He's dangling things in front. He's called the tempter. And, and Peter writes to the church in Thessalonica and reminds them that they have an enemy who is a tempter who's against them. James chapter 1 describes the process of how temptation works. It says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin capitalizes on your desires. Some of the desires we share in common, some of the desires that you have are different than desires I have. That's why sometimes something can be tempting to you, isn't tempting to me, and something can be tempting to me, doesn't even bother you at all. And Satan's pretty smart. He doesn't waste time tempting you with things that, that you don't like. He tempts you with things you do like. You know when you're on the computer that there's a tracking system of, of planting little markers called cookies, which which give a trail of the sites you've been to and the things you've been interested in, things you've been shopping, things you've been wanting to do. For example, I was, I was looking recently for a, a vacation site and looking at things we could do at this location. And lo and behold, I started getting advertisements popping up on games and on margins of rental car places, hotels, things to do at that location. I thought, that's amazing. How did the computer do that? Well, it's been tracking me. It knows my desires. It's catering the, the um, advertising to my desires. Well, they've just learned that from the enemy. That's exactly what Satan does. He caters the temptations to your desires. Now, just know this. Temptation is not a sin. Just because you feel a draw to something, you know, you can feel a draw to pornography. You can feel a draw to someone else's spouse. You could, you could have a, a, an attraction to the same uh, gender. You can have, you can have a, a draw to drink or to take drugs or to be proud and arrogant or to be materialistic. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. There, you're human. What, what we have to do is learn to say no to the temptation. To walk away from the temptation. Because once that desire is conceived, it then gives birth to sin, and sin gives birth to death. It's like Satan is a salesman trying to market his goods to us. Uh, on our phones, we've blocked most solicitors, but every once in a while, we found that solicitors are getting through. And one of the ways they got through to me recently was there was a 719 number with like random digits after that. It wasn't like, like 
something 4,000. It was something that didn't look like a business. And so I thought, oh my, this could be someone in the church that I don't know who's calling to tell me about a death. I better answer it. So I answered it. It's a solicitor. And they get into their spiel. My wife looks at me and says, who is it? And I said, it's a solicitor. And she says, hang up. Well, I don't want to hang up. I just want to, I want to be polite and have them make their pitch. And then I'm just going to say, oh, we're not interested. But what happens when I get to that point is then they'll try to come back with another argument why I should be interested. And then I have to tell them why even that argument doesn't, doesn't work. And they come back with another reason why it would be good that I buy what they're trying to sell. And I have to tell them again why that doesn't work for me. And my wife's probably right in just saying, just hang up. You already know what you should be doing. You already know that the answer is no. So don't negotiate with the salesperson. You don't have to defend yourself with the tempter. And I think some of us battle with Satan when he's dangling something. We try to say, well, I really shouldn't do that because that wouldn't be right. And then he comes back with an argument. Well, well, yeah, that's true. But, and then we, we negotiate with the enemy. And all he's doing is breaking down our resistance. The best thing you and I can do when we're faced with temptation is simply to say no and to say it quickly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Temptation, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Meaning, God has said, there's the escape route. Take it. Take it. And, and that may look different in different situations. In, in some situations, the escape route is simply to turn the TV off. Walk away from your computer. Get away from those friends. Stop having that conversation. Don't go to that place anymore. It's pretty simple. It's just... It's just like saying, no, I'm not even going to negotiate. I'm not going to linger. I know where this is heading, and I'm not going to play that game. And again, remember, this isn't just like things you're dealing with with yourself. Just picture this enemy saying, come on, come on. You love it, don't you? I know you love it. I know you want it. And you say, yeah, I really do. The quicker you say no to the enemy is the quicker you say yes to God. So be careful. He's a tempter. He'll work against you. He'll also incite us toward disunity. Incite us toward disunity. He wants to drive a wedge between every relationship we have. Not only our relationship with God, but our relationship with every person in our life. Pope Francis, a few months ago, uh, in in a speech he gave in the Vatican, said this. Gossip is a terrorist who throws verbal grenades into the church to destroy it. Gossip is a verbal grenade being thrown into the church to destroy it. He said it is one of Satan's worst tactics. He wants to divide the church. The Bible says a lot about gossips, how that divides a brother against brother, sister against sister. But you know where Satan really likes to target these relationships on earth? I believe it starts with the marriage. If you're married, Satan wants to pitch you against your spouse. Recently, I posted an article on our uh, marriage Facebook page. If you've never been there, you might want to visit and read this article. It's an article about a thing called micro-cheating. What micro-cheating is, is these little seemingly insignificant things we do that start to lead us down a path toward marital infidelity. 
they in themselves look pretty innocent. In fact, we're often naive to these things, thinking there's anything wrong with them. But if you check your heart, you realize there is something going on, and I'm not paying attention to it. If you find yourself dressing in a certain way because of someone on the opposite sex that you work with, that's a red flag. That's a red flag. If you're following someone of the opposite sex and always commenting and mark, remarking on their, um, on their comments, but especially on their pictures, that's another red flag. If you're, if you're wanting to spend friendship time opening up your heart about your problems at home and life problems with someone of the opposite sex, that, that's another step down that path. Again, none of these things in themselves are marital infidelity. It's just you're, you're heading down a path that is leading you to danger. And how do you stop that? How do you fight against it? It's actually pretty simple. Be transparent with your spouse. Take out your phone. Say, honey, you can, you can look at uh, all my texts to anybody. I, I'm not embarrassed about any of it. You can go on my Facebook page. I'm not hiding anything from you there. You can look at my comments and what I'm doing. And if anything makes you uncomfortable, you tell me and I will change it. When a spouse says, you just need to trust me, is, is, a, is a warning already saying, I may not be trustworthy. I've seen spouses play that card. You just need to trust me. I'm just talking to this old girlfriend from high school. Nothing's going on. Why are you doing that? Why, why are you even messing there? Why are, you, why are you allowing the enemy to whisper in your ears something that, that is bothering to your spouse? If you can't be open with your mate about it, and if he or she is uncomfortable, maybe they're not uncomfortable, maybe they're okay with it, that's fine. But at least be honest, be open. Let them know what's going on in your life, who you're having lunch with, who you're hanging out after work with. They should know. And if you're keeping secrets, it is, it is leading you down this path. See, Satan wants you uh, to believe that this is harmless. And in the end, he wants to drive the wedge in between your relationship. But he really does it between um, friendships as well. In Galatians chapter 5, there's a list of, of uh, works of the flesh. And right in the middle there are, is a series of words. Let me read them. Enmity, which is hatred. Strife, constant bickering conflict. Jealousy. Fits of anger, that's obvious. Rivalries, you're competing against someone else. Dissensions and divisions. Now, when you think of those things, those are fleshly desires that Satan capitalizes on these weaknesses within us. And let me just ask you, does, does hatred help a relationship at all? Does constant fighting help a relationship at all? Does jealousy, does, does a fit of anger make your relationship stronger or weaker? How, how about division and dissension, arguing? You know, all these things are destructive to relationships and they're works of the flesh that Satan says, I'm going I'm to stir the pot, get this thing moving because I know if I can get you angry, I can get you jealous, I can get you divisive, I, I, can, I can make you jealous, that that's going to break your relationship with this other person, with this friend or this other church member. And so you need to know the background to those kind of thoughts, those kind of feelings and actions. James chapter 3 says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and then demonic. Meaning this isn't just bad wisdom. It is, it is ignited by this evil spiritual force around it is wisdom or false wisdom coming from the demonic world. Why are you listening to it? And if you can put the face on it, realize that, oh my goodness, this desire to gossip, this desire to, to blow my fuse, to vent and hurt someone, that's just not me and my emotions. There's someone else egging it on, stirring me up, 
who's cheering that I do those things, and I'm not going to let him win. I'm not. I know. I know his tactics. He's not going to beat me with that one. In John chapter 13, we find that um, Jesus is having his um, last supper with his disciples. And rather than go outside the... um, outside Jesus' circle of people and get someone to betray Jesus, he gets someone right on the inner circle. In order to, to capture Jesus, he's getting one of his own 12 disciples. And it says, at that last supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's uh, son, to betray him. It's like Satan picked one of them off. This guy that Jesus spent three years with, I got him, he's mine now. You may have had him for three years, I get him tonight. And if I get him tonight, and I get him really well, I'll get him forever. And when you are, are tempted to betray your spouse, betray your kids, betray your parents, betray your friend, betray your church, know who's behind it. It is Satan. He incites us toward disunity. Fourth, he sways us toward false teaching. Paul warned the church in Ephesus that men would arise and twist the truth He calls them ferocious wolves, kind of like roaring lions, ferocious wolves who will lead people astray. And Timothy, we believe, was actually stationed in Ephesus for a while to be the pastor of that church. And so Paul reminded him of this very fact. In chapter 4, verse 1 of his letter to Timothy, he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. What in the world is that? What are, how do deceitful spirits teach people? How do demons teach people? They do it through other people. It's not like there's some invisible demonic spirit floating around shouting things out or holding services. It is, it is someone who's then occupied someone's mind and heart and is teaching through them. Satan is doing that, and he brings false teaching. False teaching to mislead the church. You know, the, the Bible says... Satan's very crafty. He has his own doctrines. He has his own gospel. He has his own synagogue. He has his own ministers. And his, his primary recruiting place are churches. Do you know that almost every cult starts from a church? That Satan doesn't take people outside. He says, I'm going to take the people in the church who don't know the Bible very well. I'm going to distort the Bible and get them to follow me over here. And so when you look at some of the major cults, and also we've got some right in our own community, churches that started with another gospel, another revelation, and people have, have bought into it. And we look at those people that go to these places, and we go, they seem so good, though. They're good people. They're my neighbors. They, 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 treat, they treat me well. They're honest people. Of course they are. Satan would want it just that way. Listen, listen to Satan's servants. It says, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. False teachers, false servants. You need to be aware that Satan's trying to mislead us from the scriptures. You know, there's an evangelist a few months ago who, who said God told him that he needed a $54 million jet in order to do his ministry. And uh, I'm going to quote you. He, he says, Jesus said this, I want you to bleed me for a Falcon 7X. Very specific. But what gets me is this phrase, bleed me, meaning I want you to draw the money, drain the money from my body, the church. 
$54 million. And his argument is, you, you don't believe Jesus would be riding a donkey around doing ministry today, would you? Of course not. He would use modern travel. But in Jesus' day, modern travel meant, I'm going to travel like everybody else. And, and obviously, this man is not traveling by donkey because he already owns three jets. This is his fourth one. And I have to think, is this guy from the Lord or not? Now, I'm not going to judge him today and say this man is of, of the evil one, but I'm just saying we have to step back sometimes and ask t- tough questions. Where are this coming from? Because Satan loves to use religious people to lure believers away. And that's his craft in doing that. Um, several years ago, we had a seminar at the um, Bible college I went to on the doctrine of the devil. And during that, we learned that, that Satan is able to perform counterfeit miracles, even healing people. And someone says, well, I don't, I don't understand that. Why would Satan do something good that actually causes people to praise God? Why would Satan do that? And another pastor raises his hand and says, I know why. He knows that he, he, it's, it's worth giving up one checker to get two. Why wouldn't Satan do a little bit of good to get a whole lot of followers to do a whole lot of evil? Well, there's one other tactic I want to focus on for the last few minutes. He hinders the spread of the gospel. The ultimate goal Satan has is to kill, steal, and destroy and keep us from the life God wants us to have. In 2 Thessalonians 2.18, Paul says, We wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Satan hinders us. Satan doesn't want to see the spread of the gospel. You ever wonder why it's so hard to share your faith? Why it's so hard to plant a church or start a ministry? You've got spiritual opposition against you. One way that comes is through persecution. In the book of Revelation, the writer there warns the believers, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Satan will throw you into prison. Not, not Satan physically, but Satan through other people will persecute you. And there's persecution going on around the world. There's a huge persecution of Christians right now going on in Nigeria through an extreme um, nomadic Islamic group. And they they describe them as being worse than Boko Haram. And yet there's very little being um, presented in the news about this group and this persecution. Persecution is one of the ways Satan um, prohibits the gospel. But the biggest way is simply through blindness. This last scripture we'll look at Paul says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You know, when I was, uh, I grew up in a church. I grew up going to church since I was little. And I did not know the gospel until I was 16. And I look back, how could I grow up in a church and be blind to the gospel? Well, it's, a very, it's very possible. Yet the church doesn't hold a high view of scripture and a high view of salvation. Yet the church believes everyone is good and is going to heaven they don't need to preach the gospel. But it wasn't until I realized that I am a sinner in need of a savior, that I have failed my God in so many ways, and yet Jesus died on a cross to forgive me, that my eyes were open, and I said, now that makes sense. That answers the question of why I am the way I am. And it makes sense of why we would even have this thing called church, because this is the reason to praise God. This is the reason to get excited about church, because I'm forgiven. And maybe you need to have the blinders taken off your eyes, And it begins with simply doing this, surrendering to God. Realizing you you aren't equipped on your own to fight the spiritual battle. You will lose. The lion will devour you. But you have to submit to the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And that is the Lord Jesus. When you surrender to him, then you are equipped to fight the battle. Listen to how James says. He says, submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And don't, don't forget that order. 
It starts with submitting to God first. Then you'll be equipped to say no to the devil and watch him flee. Watch him run away. You want to see the heels of the enemy? Submit to the Lord and resist the devil, and he will flee. Are you surrendered fully to Jesus? This is serious stuff. You don't want to pet the lion. He's not your friend. He will devour you. But he won't if you're surrendered to Jesus.